We are in a new series today, uh, When Life Brings Adversity. We're in part two. Uh, we're going to be in the book of First Peter. If you would like a Bible, we have some people that would love to bring one to you. If, if you want a, a copy of the scriptures, and you'll need one, uh, just slip up your hand. We'll be glad to hand one to you. We're going to be in First Peter. That's going to be on page 839. So I uh, encourage you to follow along. Um, it's the best way to learn. And I have to just clarify, I started the series last week, and uh, I, had, I had somebody come up to me and say I didn't preach from First Peter last week, and it's true. Uh, last week was the introduction, and, and we focused on uh, the author, who Peter, uh, who Peter was. John Ortberg wrote an article in Leadership Journal this last winter, and uh, I'm going to paraphrase from it, and then... Uh, read a quote. He said, imagine that you are handed a script of your newborn child. Now, some of you are parents and you've raised kids. Some of you have kids. Some of you are thinking you may have kids. So imagine that you get the script of their entire life like the day they're born. And you get to see what's coming. And then After you see their entire lives, you get five minutes to edit the script. You get an eraser to make changes for your kids. And you you discover with the script that your daughter has a learning disability. Reading, which is easy for some kids, will be laborious for her. She will make a great circle of friends in high school, but one of them will die of cancer. She will get into the college of her choice Uh, but she will lose a leg in a serious car accident. Then she will experience a severe depression. A few years later, she will get a great job, but she will lose it in an economic downturn. She will get married, but will not live happily ever after, and she will go through a painful separation. So if you are a parent, what would you change? It's an interesting question. I'm really glad it never got posed to me or I never really had a chance to make any changes uh, for for my kids. Um, John Ortberg writes, if you could erase every failure, disappointment, and period of suffering, would that be a good idea? Would that cause them to grow into the best version of themselves? Is it possible that we actually need adversity and setbacks, maybe even crisis and trauma, to reach the fullest potential of development and growth? Interesting question. Orberg contends that God doesn't always erase all our stress and pain before it starts. Instead, God uses failures, disappointments, and periods of suffering to help us grow. He writes, God isn't at work producing the circumstances I want. God is at work in bad circumstances to produce the me he wants. Peter would like us to understand that. And we meet this in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, when life brings Adversity And today, genuine faith shines brightly when life brings adversity. 
verses 1 and 2, we're going to start with God in his word. So if you want to uh, tune in on the outline, you can follow in the outline in your program. Uh, it's page 839 for using the Bridge Bible. Uh, verse 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood grace and peace be yours in abundance. So start with God and his word. And first we're going to learn from Peter the Apostle. Um, he says, uh, it just begins, Peter an Apostle of Jesus Christ. Pretty interesting. Uh, of course, Last week we learned that Peter was given his name by Jesus. His name was Simon or Simeon, and Peter, uh, Jesus called him Cephas, which means that's Aramaic for rock. Peter would be a rock. And um, in Greek, it's Petros, or for us, it's Peter. And his name was given. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. The time is around 64 A.D., Think in terms of 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. 30 years after we, we kind of saw a lot of Peter's failures. Peter knew a lot about adversity, by the way. This is 30 years later. He's been a church planter. He has been a church leader now for over 30 years since Jesus went back to heaven. The situation, Peter writes this young church scattered throughout the New Testament world. Believers who are facing persecution, trials, um, and adversity. Now, we're not going to know a lot because this is probably the early phases and it's going to get much worse. Just uh, to state that the meaning of the word apostle, literally it means a sent one. And so Peter was sent by Jesus Christ. In fact, he was told to go into all the world and make disciples. Um, Peter was a sent one. He was sent as a representative of Jesus Christ. One of the qualifications of an apostle in the New Testament was that he had to have seen the risen Christ. And Peter was one of those, as we saw last week, who was a follower of Jesus from the very early days of Jesus' public ministry. And so he was really discipled by Jesus for three years before the crucifixion. And uh, but after that, Peter got to see Jesus. He saw him crucified, and then he saw him raised from the dead. And that's going to change Peter's life because Jesus is the real deal. And Jesus is the one who fulfilled all the promises that he said he would. And there, were, there are more promises to come. So um, Peter is one who has seen uh, the risen Lord. The apostles, according to Ephesians 2.20, were the foundation of the church. They had a ministry that was foundational to help everything get started. That's one of the reasons in the book of Acts why I believe there are so many miraculous events around the lives of the apostles is because they're, they're laying a foundation. The Bible is not written yet. They don't have the scriptures. There's so many things that they don't know yet. And the apostles have authority to speak for God. And uh, so they're foundational. 
So we learn from Peter the Apostle. Uh, next, learn from the early church. And we see this uh, in uh, verses 1 and 2. And here's the book. The, by the way, uh, you may know this, but a letter like this in the first century begins with who it's from. And so it begins with Peter. And now we know who the letter is to. To God's elect strangers in the world, scattered throughout, as I read earlier, Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Um, some key terms here. The first one is God's elect. Now, we're just in this first couple of verses, we're heading into a very complex uh, su- subject, and I'm just going to summarize it briefly. Hopefully, uh, it makes sense. God's elect refers to the church. It refers to believers in Jesus Christ. It means that God chose them to be in his church. Ephesians 1.4 says he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's called the doctrine of election. This teaching about uh, how God has chosen those who will be his followers. Uh, This group is scattered in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Um, These are Roman provinces. They're northwest of Israel, if you're looking on a map. Some of modern-day Turkey today. So these are provinces. And then he calls them strangers in the world, uh, the church. He calls them strangers. This is a term Peter used to describe Christians. They are strangers in the world because this is not to be their permanent home. It's not to be your permanent home either. Uh, That's why it's so important that we be careful about getting too attached to the things of this world because we're not here forever. This isn't home forever. We have a different home. We, we have a citizenship that's in heaven. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're a stranger. You're not of this world. You have a citizenship in heaven, in another world. We're not here for long. We're really only passing through. That's an important concept of having an eternal perspective. This isn't everything, folks. This isn't heaven. Uh, The uh, next key term is that chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And this refers back to the doctrine of election. You were chosen by God, not because he knew that you would believe, but because he picked you by his marvelous grace. Here's the deal. You and I don't deserve to be chosen by God. It's not because of us. It's because of him. It's not because there was any good thing in you or me. It's because uh, of God's grace, his love, his mercy. He chose you if you're a follower of Jesus. Okay, here's the theological issue. This raises some questions. Uh, The sovereignty of God versus the, oh yeah, there we go. Sovereignty of God versus the free will of man. This is a classic uh, debate in theology. We could spend 10 weeks on it. I'm going to spend about 90 seconds more on it. Uh, So I'm not going to give it uh, what it's worth, but I'm going to to, uh, summarize here, give you my best perspective in short. This is sometimes called a divine antinomy. Two concepts. The sovereignty of God. Is God sovereign? 
I believe absolutely. It's exactly what the Bible teaches. God is sovereign. He is in charge. That's why he can choose. Some people aren't comfortable with that. Okay. The, the other truth is the free will of man. I have a free will and I can choose. In fact, I chose to trust Christ. That's a true statement. If you are a follower of Jesus, you made a decision to trust Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for your sins. It's human responsibility, okay? I have a free will. You have a free will. I believe the Bible teaches that. For example, John 3.16, For God so loved the world. I'm going on 90 seconds now. For God so loved the world um, that he sent his son. And you had a choice to believe. Now, here's the deal. Those things exist in tension. Sovereignty of God, free will of man. How in the world do they work? The answer is, I don't know. They're both true. It's exactly what the scripture says. I can live with that. I can live with that by faith. It's a divine antinomy. Here's what I'm comfortable with. I read the scriptures. I trust the scriptures. Here's what I'm comfortable with. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. God has not revealed everything there is to know to us. But what he has revealed, this book, I can trust. God is an infinite being. He has an infinite mind. And his categories are way beyond my categories. I'm a finite person. I sometimes think I'm smart, but I'm not very smart. I, don't, I have a very finite, very limited mind. And this is bigger. And I, I'm just comfortable to accept it by faith. Uh, you have to wrestle with that, but you've got to deal with all the scriptures that are involved. God is sovereign I have a free will. I can choose to sin or follow Christ. And I can present the gospel to people, the message of salvation, and they have a choice. They have a responsibility and they have a choice. Okay, longer than 90 seconds. Secondly, uh, purpose here. The whole purpose of this uh, writing and of this uh, work of God is for obedience to Jesus Christ. It's through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, chosen through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. God worked in your life. The Holy Spirit drew you to himself. He opened your heart, opened your mind, gave you the ability to understand so that you could believe. It was the Holy Spirit at work in you to sanctify you, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. That means to set apart. Set apart. God brought the Holy Spirit into your life to set you apart for him. And any time the Holy Spirit sanctifies something, it's set apart to serve God. And that's what you were set apart for. Um, and this, so we're set apart for obedience. That's why uh, God brought you into the kingdom. That's why you are a child of God for obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what the Great Commission is all about. Go ahead. Uh, Go into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey pretty much everything or 
kind of everything or quite a few things. Teach them to obey everything. We call that a fully devoted follower of Christ. That's what the goal is, full devotion. And then we start with a, 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 a normal greeting, a blessing greeting. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Um, grace is God's favor. It's God's blessing. Uh, it's not deserved. Peace, uh, Hebrew word shalom, some of you know, refers to this sense of well-being, peace in the inner circumstances. Now, as I was reading this this week, it just occurred to me, we have a tendency to gloss this over just as a greeting. Here's my uh, question to you. Do you, Peter is an example here, do you wish God's favor on all the people around you, on the people in your life? Do you wish God's peace in abundance so it just overflows to people around you? That's that's Peter's example uh, to us. So when life brings adversity, genuine faith shines brightly. Um, And genuine faith starts with God and his word. And I would like to suggest what we're going to see is that life is not about you. Life is about God. Okay? Problem is, is we make life about us. Let's, let's unfold this. Uh, secondly, focus on eternal realities, not your adversities. Focus on eternal realities, not your adversities. Focus on God, not your problems. Um, in verses 3 through 5, understand the significance of the new verse, new, new birth. Look at verse three. Praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, the first thing I want us to see is something Peter shows us here. And I'm going to put it this way. Revelation, response and worship. Do we have that revelation, response and worship. Peter responds to the revelation of God. Revelation is about God's word, God communicating to us. Peter is responding to this grace that God has given to him, this new birth um, that he, uh, he is elect by the mercy of God, and he responds. This is a normal pattern for you and me. Revelation, and you respond. God reveals, God speaks. He speaks here, and you respond. Sometimes the Holy Spirit prompts you. You are to respond. It's revelation, response, and that leads Peter here to worship. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how Peter processes it. When he thinks of God's gracious act of eternal salvation, he gives praise to God. Words of worship. It's pretty simple. That's what faith is. It's responding back to God when you take God at his worth. Okay, here we go. Second part. Uh, you have received a new birth. We, 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 we just read that. Um, um, in his great mercy, he has given us a new birth. Peter refers to our salvation. He refers to a new birth into a living hope. He says it was given to you. It was a gift. It was a spiritual birth. Think about this. You were born physically, right? Right? Just try, somebody, I know it's warm in here. Um, you were born physically, but you can't enter the kingdom of God with a physical birth. You need a spiritual birth. God is spirit. 
And so he gives a new birth, which is a spiritual birth. Jesus said uh, we need to be born again. That's what he's talking about. Think in terms of God is a spirit and, and uh, in the flesh, I have no connection with God. But when I'm born again and given a new birth, I have a spiritual connection with God. And that's what enables me to pray and for God to hear. That's what enables me to grow and change. That's what enables me to understand and process the word of God. So this need for a new birth, and it's a gift. Uh, also, uh, in verse 4, you have received an inheritance that can never perish. It can never perish, spoil, or fade. What is an inheritance? Well, it's something you get when someone else dies. And uh, when Jesus died, he gave an inheritance to his followers. And it's a, an inheritance that will never perish. We know quite a bit about it in Scripture. There's a lot we don't know. Uh, it will be much greater than what we already know. It will never perish. It is eternal. Fourthly, uh, in verse 4, you have received an inheritance kept by God in heaven for you. It's kept in heaven for you right now, for you personally. God knows your name, and he has it marked out for you. It's kept for you. Nobody, nobody else. Five, you are shielded by God's power right now until your salvation is complete. Look at verse five. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. You are shielded by God's power. Do you get that? Right now, because you have this connection, because you have a new birth, because you have a spiritual connection with God, you are protected. You are shielded by God's power right now. And until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. Uh, when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you were saved from the penalty of your sin. You're not fully saved because you're in a process day by day until ultimately you'll be face to face with Jesus and have an ultimate salvation and receive all the inheritance that God has promised to you. Um, and it says here, ready to be revealed at the last time. Guess what? Yesterday at 6 p.m. was not judgment day. I'm okay with that. Um, it's really sad that people get messed up like that. And there's nothing in Scripture about they had some basic ideas and a whole lot of false ideas. And it's just sad because the name of Christ and every headline, you know, everywhere you go in a headline this morning, there's people that are laughing at this. That's just sad. But these were some these were some silly people. And that's, you know, Jesus warns us the, the scriptures warn us about being foolish. There's plenty of scriptures about that and the problem of false teachers. Um in verse 6, be prepared for adversity. Be prepared for adversity. Verse 6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, so for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Those people uh, probably who thought Jesus was coming yesterday feel like they're facing persecution today. But they're facing persecution for being foolish, not because they're honoring God. 
Um, in this you greatly rejoice. What is he referring to? He's not referring to greatly rejoicing necessarily about the grief and all kinds of trials. It's about the new birth. It's about the inheritance kept and shielded by God's power. This is that principle of revelation and response. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. You greatly rejoice at the gift God has given to you. Um, They were experiencing real grief, real trials, real adversity. We don't know exactly what they faced. It was the beginning of a persecution. What's coming in the next couple of years in the New Testament world, there is going to be executions. There's going to be torture for being a follower of Jesus. And that's actually how Peter will end his life. He will be uh, executed because he uh, refuses to renounce Jesus. Peter uh, wants his readers to understand adversity against the backdrop of eternity. Um, The Apostle Paul um, saw this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. He says, for it's been granted to you. He's talking to the Philippian church. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Um, The Apostle Paul uh, saw this coming and he saw that God was bringing his people through uh, adversity. Tony Snow, former press secretary to George W. Bush. Uh, has been battling cancer off and on since 2005. When asked what spiritual lessons he has learned from his battle with cancer, he said, we want lives of simple, predictable ease, smooth even, uh, smooth, even trails as far as the eye can see, but God likes to go off-road. That's true, though. You know, we want the good life. We want life without problems. We want everything to be good. And um, one, that's not how life works, whether you're a follower of Christ or not. And um, that's not uh, what God uses to enable us to grow. The Apostle Paul understood what identifying with Jesus entailed. He understood how God used adversity, helped conform him to be more like Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. He says, this is Paul. This is Paul's heart. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's exciting. I want to know God's power. God raised Jesus from the dead, brought life to a dead body. I want to know that power, Paul says. And then he says, Uh, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Here's the deal. Uh, Jesus suffered a horrible death before the resurrection. Paul says, I want to know Jesus. I want to experience Jesus. I want to know what his power is like. And I understand that I'm going to have to know something about suffering, if that's true. In verses 7 through 9, know that God has a purpose for adversity. God has a purpose for adversity. In referring to the trials in verse 7, he says, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, 
which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. So here's the first thing I want you to see. Number one, God values a life of faith above all of the wealth in the world. Do you believe that? God values a life of faith more than anything that money can buy. At 4 p.m. on Friday, the value of gold was $1,512.05 per ounce. Times 16 ounces is $24,192.80. That's a pound. I calculated that I would be worth $5,080,488 if I were worth my weight in gold. Some of you would be worth more. Some of you would be worth less. God says my faith, the work he's doing in my life right now, is more valuable than all the gold in the world. And my faith is about my relationship with God. It's about how he and I are doing today and tomorrow and last week. It's about am I walking with God? It's, It's about... Am I following Jesus? Hebrews reminds us of this in Hebrews eleven six. The writer says, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. Sometimes you and I try to please God without trusting him. We think God just ought to be happy with us because we do good things or we think we're good people. Bible says without faith, if I don't trust him, it's impossible to please him because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I think sometimes Christians get sidetracked because, one, they just deflect the whole idea of rewards. I don't need rewards. I don't want rewards. It doesn't make any difference. God has a reward system on it when it comes to faith. And um, he does care about your faith and he does want you to process and he does want you to grow. Um, and he will reward you. Faith is about taking God at his word. I can't think of a simpler, better definition for me. It's faith is taking God at his word one day at a time, putting it into my life one day at a time, doing what he says. It's about trusting his promises. It's about trusting the eternal word of God above our circumstances. Um, faith is about trusting God when his, even when his word goes against conventional wisdom. Also in verse uh, 7, we see that um, adversity refines faith like fire. Verse 7 says, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. Um, Adversity refines our faith. Just as gold, to refine gold, you have to heat it up and then... um, remove the dross or the impurities, but you have to heat it up. You fire it up. And um, God uses adversity to fire up your faith, to get your attention, to heat up, to get your... There's a, a, a ton of information about physical pain in the human body. God has designed pain to get your attention. In the human body. You got to do something when you have pain. God uses uh, difficulty, adversity, and pain in your life 
to get your attention, to heat up your faith because you need him, because you can't solve your problems. It's amazing how we think we can do life when life is good. And then when life gets hard, we need God. God could just say, you ought to have problems all the time. And that way you'd trust me. Um, it doesn't, doesn't do that. Adversity refines like fire. James 1.12, James understood this. He said, blessed is the man who perseveres under trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the man. It's, um, he's saying, oh, the happiness of the person who perseveres. Gets to the other side of it. Doesn't necessarily feel happy in the midst of it, but on the other side, uh, because he perseveres, he's in a blessed position because he has stood the test. And there, there God is the rewarder of those who have faith, those who trust, those who walk with him through difficult times. Also in verse 7, adversity gives proof that your faith is genuine. This is really what the title of the sermon is all about. Adversity gives proof that your faith is genuine. Um, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result uh, in praise, glory, honor to Jesus. Adversity gives proof that your faith is genuine. Trials prove that your faith is real. Um, Adversity focuses us on trusting God uh, every day. Um, Adversity takes our faith out of the realm of head knowledge. Back to, you know, the whole thing about raising kids, and if if you could erase things in the script of your children's life. Often it's adversity in our kids' lives that get their attention. At some point, children, if they grow up in a Christian home, have to make some kind of adjustment from their parents' faith to their own faith. Are they going to do this because mom and dad said or because this is what they choose? And um, adversity really helps um, get, uh, get our attention. Also in verse 7, trusting God through adversity gives Jesus the proper credit. This is really what it's always been about. It's about giving Jesus the proper credit so that your faith may be proved genuine, may result in praise, may result in glory, may result in honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's worship. That's why we go through adversity so our faith will be proved genuine and so Jesus Christ will get the honor. Not so that we can... We'll get honor. It's so that he can get honor. Loving God first in adversity results in expressible joy. Verses 8 and 9. Look at verse 8. Though you have uh, not seen him. And I think, you know, Peter here is just reflecting back. Though you have not seen him. The, the believers in the New Testament are like you. Never got to see Jesus face to face in the flesh. Peter did. And remember, it was Thomas in John 20, verse 29, uh, and, you know, Thomas, the doubting Thomas, and, and he, he wanted to make sure he didn't, he didn't think Jesus had really been raised from the grave until, he said, not until I see, not until I touch will I believe. 
And then he sees Jesus and he ends up saying, my Lord and my God. And he does believe. And uh, Jesus said in John 20, verse 29, blessed are those who have not seen you and me and yet believe. And Peter writes, though you have not seen him, you, you love him. This is a very commendable to this group. They love Jesus Christ, though they have not seen him. He says, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you remember what the greatest commandment is in all the Bible? Jesus taught this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Your neighbor is the second one. Love the Lord is first. Okay. And this group got it in the first century. They were uh, loving um, Jesus. And it's a very uh, high uh, commendation. Total commitment. It's about putting him first. Um, Peter refers to this group as uh, having loved Jesus, that they understood the adversity thing. They understood living by faith, not by sight. Because of their faith, because of their love for Jesus, in the midst of their suffering, they had experienced an inexpressible joy. By by the way, joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's what grows out of uh, a spirit-filled, spirit-controlled life. And in the midst of their pain, they experienced joy. Um. The Apostle uh, Paul uh, learned this, and he describes it a little bit differently in Philippians 4. He says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. You know, this is, you know, America. Prosperity, economic downturn, we tighten our belt, and then we get prosperity again. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. This is the part I love. I've learned the secret of being content in any in every situation, knowing uh, what it means to be content, knowing that um, I'm okay with God, knowing I am satisfied, I don't need more than God. That's where Paul was. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, verse 13, next slide, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. This is what Paul learned. He could face anything with the strength that Jesus Christ gave him. He had learned a secret of being content. Lastly, um, okay, we we have a quote. Yes, thank you. Too often we try to use God to change our circumstances while he is using our circumstances to change us. What do you think of that? We like God to fix things so our lives will be comfortable. And God likes to use our circumstances to change us. In verses 10 through 12, we're, we're, we're coming down the home stretch. I know it's a little bit warm in here. You're hanging in there really well. Here we go. Verses 10 through uh, 12. Don't be trivial about the gift of your eternal salvation. Don't be trivial. 
this is a this is one of the things we face in America today. American Christianity. You know, people uh, begin their relationship with God sort of as eternal fire insurance. I don't want to go to hell. I'll choose Jesus. And that's it. That's not what uh, God has had in mind at all. It's about following Jesus. Uh, don't be trivial. Uh, we get this idea that, oh, yeah, uh, I believe in Jesus and I'm, I'm good. You know, and now I've got to handle life and I've got all these difficult decisions and I want to be successful and I want to be happy. I want to have a great family. Um, don't be trivial about the gift of your eternal salvation. First, in verses 10 and 11, God, uh, godly people of old have sought to understand God's plan for sending his son. Concerning this salvation, the one that we uh, are tempted to trivialize, the prophets who spoke of grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Prophets, Isaiah is the one that comes to mind here. Uh, King David in Psalm 22. Isaiah and Isaiah 53 are the main ones. Ezekiel referred to this time. Daniel referred to this time. Jeremiah referred to this time. Uh, they look forward to this. They, they studied the scriptures. They sought, what, the, what is this going to be like? What are the implications? How, what are God, how are God's promises going to be fulfilled when Messiah comes? And uh, they wanted to know what we know. Um, and then lastly, angels are fascinated by God's gift of your salvation through his son. Verse 12. Angels are fascinated by this. It was revealed to them, that is to prophets like Isaiah, that they were not serving themselves, but you. Think of that. They were serving you when they wrote. Uh, they searched and they wanted to know the answers that, the answers that you know. But um, it was revealed that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Uh, even angels long to look into these things. Uh, he, he, he refers to um, those who preach the gospel to you uh, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. He's going back to that group in Acts chapter 2. God sent the Holy Spirit in the response uh, to Peter's message. And um, that's uh, how the church got started and God had been sending people to preach the gospel and God has sent people today to preach the gospel. And uh, Peter says, even angels would like to understand this gospel. Angels are fascinated. Why in the world would God do what he does? Why would God um, make forgiveness so easy? Why would he extend his grace to people? Why would God send his son to die on the cross and pay the penalty for sins? Angels are fascinated by this story and by how God works. And uh, don't trivialize your salvation. We are to live our lives in response to what God has done for us. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. 
is kind of a good way to sum this up. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, uh, the writer of Hebrews is referring to the cloud of witnesses, those people who are sort of go- who have gone ahead in Hebrews chapter 11 and are sort of watching uh, what's going on here. He said, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders. What, what hinders your life right now? He says, let's throw it off. This may not be something bad. It's just not efficient. It's distracting you, using energy. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin. And here's this is something clearly marked out as sin, the sin that so easily entangles. Some things entangle us. Some things trip us up. Some things call us to fall, cause us to fall. And he says, let us run the race marked out for us. That's a reference to the Christian life. Let us run. Let us keep going. Uh, let's, let's take off what we need to make this uh, efficient and uh, God-honoring. And he says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Keep our focus there. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This was the advice of the writer of Hebrews to people who were facing adversity, is to focus, keep their eyes on Jesus. He he, uh, experienced suffering. So, when life brings adversity, genuine faith shines brightly. Now, you can... You can um, Choose just to, to get down and discouraged and get sort of uh, going through a difficulty can take a lot of energy and it's a very big deal. And that's that's one of the reasons why God designed the church is so other people would come alongside and encourage and help and walk with you and bear your burdens together. Um, the Bible says to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And there's a place for that. We need other people when we face adversity. When life brings adversity, genuine faith shines brightly. Start with God and his word. Focus on the eternal and not the adversity. Um, You remember what Job said in the book of Job? In chapter 1, he just lost uh, part of his family. And he... um, he lost all of his wealth. And his response was, uh, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you remember that? We have a little video clip to remind us. 